Thank you, worship team. What are wonderful songs to prepare our hearts to hear from you, from, from hear the Lord this morning. Um, I hope that you, you all took advantage of that opportunity to just bask in the presence of the Lord, that our hearts would be ready to hear from Him. Welcome this morning. Glad to see you all here, brave in the cold. Some months ago, um, I put together one of the devotionals um, that we've been trying to do each week as elders, and it was titled, um, First Impressions, and it had to do with how we are so quick to make judgments on other people, whether they're Christians or not, just by a first glance. Well, today we're going to look at things a little differently. It's going to be more of an introspection into how our lives look to others. What does our life say about our relationship with Christ? Does our life reflect Him? Does it point to Him? Does it make people say, hmm, why are they different? So would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here together this morning. We thank you, Father, that we are free to gather and worship in your name. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now, Lord, that you would use it to teach us, to guide us, to grow us, that our lives may reflect you more. Would you open our hearts and our minds, our ears, to hear what you would say to each one of us, Lord. By your Spirit, speak to our hearts and teach us your ways and draw us close to you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So the title of this message is, How Does My Letter Read? How Does My Letter Read? And you'll see in a few moments why that is, is something we want to look at. We're going to start today in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> a little bit before chapter 3. We're going to start in chapter 2, reading verses 14 to 16a. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Before we dig too far into that, we want to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Um, in our culture today, it's still somewhat okay, although it's decreasing, it's still somewhat okay to talk about God, especially if you keep it in pretty generic terms. Now, what people think about God can vary, but it's generally 
you're not totally shunned if you decide to talk about God. Although, you know, there are groups like the ACLU and Americans United for Separation of Church and State that they'd like to see any mention of God completely removed from our culture. But in general, the more generic you keep it, the less likely you are to encounter opposition or a negative response. However, bring up the name of Christ and you will likely get one of two responses. The person will listen attentively because they are spiritually hungry and looking for truth, or they will reel back, sometimes physically, and either get verbally abusive or the conversation will just shut down. Dead end. The reality is, as we just read, Christ is the smell of death to those who reject him and the sweet fragrance of eternal life to those who believe and love him. Let's continue on in 2 Corinthians. Verses 16b to 3.1. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Do you sense a slight defensive tone in Paul here? Yeah, a little bit. And this is where we kind of need some background information. You see, Paul came to Corinth from Athens on his second missionary journey. And we can read about that in more detail in Acts 18. We'll go there now, Acts 18, 1 to 11. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So that's our background. Why was Paul in Corinth? Why was he writing to the Corinthians? Well, Corinth was rebuilt as a Roman colony in 46 B.C. It had experienced rapid growth as a major trade center. 
It had shipping ports on both sides because it was an isthmus. <laughs> Try and say that. It had quite a mixture of people. There were Jews, Romans, Greeks. There were bankers, businessmen, sailors, and prostitutes. And everybody in between. The city had a reputation of immorality even among the pagans. And Paul spent much time there, as we just read, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But the Jews, most of the Jews, rejected his message. And they became abusive toward him. So Paul decided to focus on the Gentiles of Corinth. The Gentiles, of course, being non-Jewish people. And Acts 18.8 says, Many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Paul stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them. And because of their moral culture and background, they needed a lot of teaching. Basically, Paul was planting a church there. Eventually, Paul left Corinth and made his way to Syria. Now, since many of the Corinthian believers were Gentiles, meaning they had no background of the Jewish laws and prophets, and because of the culture they found themselves immersed in, they were easy prey for the multitude of false teachers that made their way throughout the region. Now, because of the number of false teachers infiltrating the church, it had become a common practice for teachers to carry uh, letters of recommendation or introduction to kind of validate their, their right to speak, I guess. The problem is the false teachers... The false dishonest teachers use dishonest means to acquire these letters. And many of these false teachers worked very hard to discredit Paul's ministry, not only in Corinth, but in other places as well. We see in 2 Corinthians in chapters 10 to 12, these false teachers accused Paul of being cowardly, of being undignified, of acting fleshly, boastful, and deceitful. They accused him of not being one of the original apostles, therefore not qualified to teach. They accused him of having no credentials, no letter. Therefore, Paul is, he kind of is defending his ministry and his message. Let's go back to our passage, 2 Corinthians. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. The Corinthian believers themselves were all the credentials Paul needed. Their lives provided the evidence that the gospel Paul preached was sufficient and true. And it was authentic. Paul says, you're written on our hearts. That was the evidence, direct evidence to Paul himself and, and his cohorts. And then it said it was known and read by everybody. That's ev evidence to everybody else that Paul's message was true and authentic. 1 Corinthians 9, 2 says, for you are, speaking to his followers, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Let's continue in verse 3. 
And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You show that you are a letter from Christ. Ding, ding, ding. That's, that's the point that we're trying to get to today. And it's not because of Paul. It's because of what Christ has done in their lives. It's because of a transformation. Something that no human could accomplish. Paul was simply an instrument in the Lord's hand. He also says it was written on their hearts by the Spirit of a living God. Ezekiel 11.19 says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Indicating that God does something miraculous in our hearts when we believe. Let's continue on verses 4 and 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Answering the question asked in 2.16, and who is equal to such a task, as we read earlier, or ESV states it as, who is sufficient for, such, for these things? Who is sufficient to be spreading this message of the gospel? So Paul's pointing out here, they're not boasting about themselves, but what Christ was doing through their ministry. Paul was saying, it is the reality of Christ demonstrated in your lives that makes us confident. Again, we pick it up in verse 6. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, letter here is used in a different way. What Paul's referring to here when he says letter is the Old Testament law. Paul begins to explain his message and why it's different. He begins to contrast the old versus the new covenant. This was necessary because many of the false teachers that were attacking Paul's character and authenticity were Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who believed that many of the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament were still binding. They argued that Paul tried to make the message more appealing to Gentiles by removing the legal requirements. Paul wrote, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter, again, like I said, refers to the Old Testament covenant, the law. The Spirit refers to the new covenant in Christ. The law, as it were, was good, but it was unable to save it, unable to save people. It simply pointed out man's sinfulness and man's need for redemption. Redemption. 
If we jump back to Romans chapter 3, we look at verse 20. Paul writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The new covenant, through Christ, brings eternal life. And we see that as we continue on in Romans 3, picking up with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Going back to our passage in 2 Corinthians. Let's pick it up in verses 7 to 11. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory... In the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So again, Paul is contrasting the Old Testament law and the New Covenant. Even though the Old Covenant came with glory, it brought death. It condemned men. And it faded away. The New Covenant in Christ brings life. It brings righteousness. And the best part, it lasts forever. The glory of the new, huge, renders the glory of the old zero. Let's continue in verses 12 to 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. Let's stop there. To know a little bit more about what he's talking about, I'm going to jump back to Exodus. And hopefully it will make more sense what we're talking about here. Exodus 34, 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain. 
Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all the Lord, he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of of Israel what he had he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So basically, Moses didn't want the Israelites to see the fading of the glory so that they would continue to honor him as the one who represented God. The fact that it did fade was symbolic of the fading quality of the Old Covenant. Paul doesn't need a veil. That's what he's trying to point out here. He doesn't need a veil for the glory of the new covenant doesn't fade. And that's why they can be bold. Let's continue in 2 Corinthians. Pick it up in verse 14 to 16. But their minds were hardened, for to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's not until they trust in Christ that they realize that the new covenant supersedes the old. The old, inadequate covenant. And not unlike the spiritual blindness that hinders all of us until we come to Christ in faith. Until, our, until God opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, we too are blinded and have a veil over our face. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let's continue in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'm going to read that again. Now the Lord who 
The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We who believe are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Some texts render that from glory to glory. And it is because of the Lord in us. He does the transforming. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, For we are the temple of a living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus as he's praying for all believers, in John 17, 26, said, I have made you known to them, praying to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the, that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Just prior to that in verse 22, he said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. As believers, we should be marked by the glory of Christ, which throws us right back to verses 2 and 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The application of this passage is obvious. Each of us has to ask the question, does my life demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ to change a life? Does my life reflect in increasing measure, the glory of the living God dwelling within me. In other words, how does my letter read? What does it say? Moses asked an interesting question in Exodus 33. Thirty-three, twelve to 16. God had just commanded Moses to lead the people on their way to the promised land. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. 
Is it not in your going with us that, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every, every other people on the earth. Distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. You, you see the parallel there? Moses is asking the Satan, how are people going to know that I'm with you if, if, if you're not with us, if it's not obvious that you are with us? And it should be the same for us. Each of us has to ask, is it obvious that God is with me? Is it obvious that God is within me? What does my life look like to other people? Do I forgive? Or do I hold grudges? What do my social media posts say about me? What do my Facebook posts, my tweets, Snapchat, you name it? What do those things say about me? Do I encourage people? Or do I tear down and criticize? Do I love others? Is it obvious that I love others? Especially other believers. Jesus said, love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Do we stand out as different? Do we stand out as distinct? In a, in a positive way. Or do we blend into the world so well that nobody would suspect a thing? Are we stealth Christians? The glory of the Lord should be evident in us as believers. An interesting thing happened this morning as Jenny was reading uh, a devotional. It's an old devotional. It's called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. And the message on January 23rd, which is today, and I hadn't looked at this ahead of time, <laughs> is based on 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. And Chambers writes, The outstanding characteristic of a Christian is this unveiled frankness before God so that the life becomes a mirror for other lives. By being filled with the Spirit, we are transformed. And by beholding, we become mirrors you always know when a man has been beholding the glory of the Lord. You feel in your inner spirit that he is the mirror of the Lord's own character. Beware of anything which would sully that mirror in you. It is always nearly a good thing, but the good thing that is not best. So let's allow Christ to do his work in us, making us more like him, every day so that the world around us sees that and is drawn to the Lord 
Jesus who saved us and is doing that work in us so that they too can have hope of eternal life and be saved. So how does your letter read? Let's allow him to do his work in us, making us more like him every day, transforming us from glory to glory. Would you pray with me, please, as the worship team comes up? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that you have so carefully preserved for us, that you've so carefully put together for us. We stand in awe of your word, Lord, and how you tie it all together. And your message is so clear from beginning to end. Thank you, Lord, for the things you're teaching us. Lord, we want so much to abide in you and be yielded to you so that our lives do reflect your glory and your character. Help work that in us, God. We know that we can't do it in our own strength. We certainly want to join you in that effort, but God, we know that only you can do that transformation. So please, Lord, do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.